When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think we call women divas to tear them down when we want to say a much worse thing. And I think the bar is just so low. Like a man would have to do so much to be called an asshole. And a woman just has to be like, I'm so sorry. Um, you did this wrong. And they're like, fuck you. I'm lady Hey divas and welcome to Unladylike. I'm Kristen. <laughs> I'm Caroline. <laughs> Caroline, it feels so unnatural to address our audience as divas. <laughs> For sure. But y'all, it is appropriate because today we're time traveling back to the peak divas era of the 90s. Okay, y'all are hearing Mariah Carey's first single from 1990, Vision of Love. It is a video that is imprinted on my mind. I was absolutely obsessed with it when I was growing up. And that obsession endured because, Kristen, I was still obsessed with one Mariah Carey when she was on the first VH1 Divas Live concert in 1998. Oh my god, Divas Live. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me mm-hmm. tell me about your viewing experience. <laughs> okay, picture it. It's yes. a weeknight, a Tuesday. I'm in 8th grade. I'm probably in my jam jams. I'm with my mom and my eyeballs are glued to the television because Divas Live for those of y'all who either <laughs> for some reason, don't remember or perhaps are too young. Uh, Divas Live was an event that got together so many incredible women. Mariah was up on stage with her big, gorgeous hair, her teeny tiny, gorgeous dress, alongside Queen of Soul Aretha Franklin, Gloria Estefan, Shania Twain, and the other diva that we'll be focusing on in this episode, Celine Dion. Yeah, Celine and Mariah are like this unladylike case study in the celebrity diva construct. Like, both have a lot in common in terms of their talent, their marriages to super powerful older men, and their pop cultural superstardom. Both of them also got the diva treatment in the media, but in very different ways. To help us break down Celine's and Mariah's divadums, we are talking to comedian Chelsea Devantes, host of one of our favorite podcasts, Celebrity Book Club. Each episode, Chelsea recaps a famous woman's memoir and gives them the respect they deserve. I think people really don't give these books enough credit. And it's kind of, you know, a big theme with women, just not giving them enough credit and thinking they belong in this trashy category simply for having items in them about that could be like celebrity gossipy or whatever. But they're 
almost all of them are survival stories. And because they are celebrities, all of them are powerful women. Whether you think you respect them or not, they got to a powerful place, which means they've all been through some fucking shit. And some of that fucking shit is getting labeled a diva. It's a theme that's come up in many of the memoirs Chelsea's covered, especially Mariah Carey's 2020 memoir, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, and Celine Dion's 2001 memoir, My Story, My Dream. So today, Chelsea is going to walk us through Mariah's and Celine's life stories. She's going to compare and contrast their respective diva identities And she'll also share how these celebrity memoirs shine a light on the personal traumas, media misrepresentations, and straight-up sexism behind the diva's music. Get it? Like, like VH1's behind the music? Oh, yeah. Yeah. uh, Okay, great. Okay, well, let's do it. (laughs) 90s puns, here we come. Is there an origin story or kind of a gateway memoir that started Celebrity Book Club for you? Yeah, you know, celebrity memoirs have always been my favorite genre. I joke and say that's what happens when your nearest bookstore (laughs) is a Walmart growing up. And um, so, yeah, I've read hundreds of them throughout my life. And the podcast started when I was on a girl's trip and I was reading Jessica Simpson's memoir in a hot tub, real drunk. (laughs) And I was like, this book is so good. The people got to know. They have to know what's in here. And I started recapping the book on my Instagram stories and the podcast started almost immediately. (laughs) How does the concept of the diva show up in the celebrity memoirs that you've read? Like, have you noticed it either as a label that people are resisting or something that they lean into? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because Mariah Carey literally redefines the word diva in her book and is sort of like, quit calling me a diva. This is what a diva really is. And she she writes that they're a soprano. It means you're a female soprano <laughs> singer. And, you know, her mom's an opera singer. So that had a lot of meaning for her. I mean, all of the women deal with obstacles that come with having difficult personalities, which to varying degrees. Sometimes you read the book and you're like, yeah, you you really actually do sound like you have a difficult personality. Other times you read it and it's like, yes, by having one want or a boundary, you were labeled this thing. I think almost all of the books have to fight against that. Even like Dolly Parton, which her book, you know, she's she's the most lovable, plays both sides, you know, kind of like She's learned to make people love her even though she's standing up for what she wants. So even though she doesn't come right out and say, like, I'm not a diva throughout the book, she's talking about how the times people tried to run her over because they thought she was just like a dumb blonde and the ways she stood her ground. Yeah, she's kind of an anti-diva almost. Yeah, except she's such – I mean, like, if we're talking – you know, if a diva is a female version of a hustler, which I assume is the official definition on this podcast, (laughs) she's such a diva. I mean – Truly, almost all of them are divas. There's no way to be in their position as a celebrity and not be a diva. She's done an amazing thing, which is branded and marketed herself as not one. But she always, you cannot mess with Dolly Parton. You can't get one over on her, but she makes you think that you can. And so she gets away with anything. Also, the fact that I just described Dolly, who you're totally right, like is, I mean, she personifies diva in so many ways. I think the fact that I try to describe her as an anti-diva just reveals my own 
inherently sexist connotation of diva, but we can get into that later. <laughs> I mean, maybe your diva, like, do all our divas come out on this podcast? Is this the day where we just, like, step into diva? <laughs> <laughs> we shall reclaim. <laughs> mm-hmm. So ha- have you ever self-identified as a diva? Do you have any diva-ish qualities yourself? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I don't think I would be here if I didn't. And by be here, I, I you know, I'm a woman in comedy. And just I also kind of came up in sort of the last generation of where you would be the only girl on your improv team. And if you don't have um if you don't build up a really intense core strength, you will not make it. And when you have a lot of strength, you get called a diva or a bitch or anything. I actually, you know, I'm um, so I used to perform in the Second City, which is a theater in Chicago. And you do live improv and comedy shows all the time. And um, I one time um, our stage manager would always set the chairs wrong before our show. And we had to do this weird, complicated dance with the chairs. And so they couldn't (laughs) be set wrong. And so every night I would be like, can you, you know, you miss the chairs. Can you, and I was nice, but it's like, you have to reset the chairs. You have to reset the chairs. And on the third time, um, we were in a new theater and you could hear them over the mics and they didn't know we could hear them backstage. And they were like, God, she's such a diva. Always asking for us to fix these chairs. And I was like, okay, this is, that cannot, the bar is too low. It's too low. Like, I cannot be a diva for asking for the chair to be in the right place. Do you think that they saw that as like, maybe not even consciously, but do you think they saw that as like a less sexist way to call you a bitch like oh well I'm not calling her a bitch it's just that she's being so demanding oh my god yeah that's such a great point I do think we let people say diva when what they mean is bitch but honestly I would prefer bitch to me bitch is like a a great term that I've decided is a compliment and I would prefer you just (laughs) say that because it feels like it has more power behind it well What are some of the connotations when someone else is labeling you a diva? Yeah, I think one specific thing that comes with being a diva, I think, is uh, femme presenting. So Mm. if you are woman, man, non-binary, if you choose to be femme presenting, there is a much bigger target on your back um, and on the front of your face. People think they get to dismiss you, whereas if you choose to present more masculine, different words will be used for you. And kind of like the word like slut, you know, it has this connotation of like, because you're femme, you are worthless. I think, you know, a big theme for Mariah Carey in her book is how she is very femme, pop star, cutesy. And so people forget to call her a songwriter. And she wrote 19 number one hits to compare. Billy Joel wrote eight. So and but we don't think of her as a songwriter. We think of her as a singer. And I think we do that to women who enjoy their femininity. And also I am um, very feminine. I I used to hide it in order to succeed in this business. I used to try and be more one of the boys because it's a business that's one of the boys. And thankfully I stopped pretty early on and really leaned hard the other way. Like I love, I love drag queens. I love makeup. I love <laughs> celebrity gossip. I love all of it. And I just gave fully into it. But um, it does make things harder for you. I def- I had people tell me, like, if I would dress differently, I would be funnier. Oh. <laughs> differently as in, like, <laughs> I'm going to guess 
They weren't talking about like put on a funny outfit. Like <laughs> no, no, yeah, they were literally like stop. If you could hide your boobs, I think you would do better. And it's <sighs> like yeah, yeah, but you know what? Everyone's personal act of feminism should be to dress and act however the fuck they want and never care what anyone thinks. And for me, that is going so full hard femme that it scares you. Like, I like putting on so much makeup and being so feminine that it is no longer attractive. It's like, oh, my God, what's happening? Like that, that's how I that's what I enjoy, you know, telling jokes and like a full red lip and a crown like that makes that makes me happy. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're diving deeper into the not-so-sweet-sweet fantasy baby of Mariah Carey's ascent to divadom. Stick around for that vision of love. Mariah Carey is the best-selling female artist in history. She sold over 115 million albums. With her success came a reputation that she was a demanding artist, which sometimes translates into difficult. Combine all that together, and you get the title, Diva. I'm doing my best to be a diva this evening. Let me read you something you said about that, okay? Okay. The nature of my life, the nature of what I do is divadom. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning this world in which I live is, you know, when people are doing your makeup and your hair and you've got an entourage, you may not even want an entourage. You may not even want half of these things, but it's part of the whole swirl of, you know, of showbiz as a female artist. Are you hard to work with? No. I don't think so. Demanding? I don't think so. I didn't even demand sleep for years. Oh, how demanding could I be? I never even had a lunch break half of the time. We're back, darling. And that was the disgraced Matt Lauer pretty much summing up the inherent sexism of the diva label. You're demanding. You're difficult. You have a reputation. It is so loaded, Caroline. It is so loaded, but it can also be fun, right? Like, when I think of Mariah Carey's reputation as a diva, honestly, like, I'm immediately taken back to a little MTV show called Cribs. I, I, will, I will never forget this episode. You get the standard tour of Mariah's house. Like, yes, she also does get into the bathtub on camera. She's allowed to do whatever she wants in her home. That's fine. But the part that really sticks out to me is the trip we take to her closet because she has an entire section dedicated to lingerie. Kristen, it was on hangers. My underpants are balled up in my drawer. So, like, I don't know if having a lingerie closet makes someone a diva, but damn if it's not aspirational. <laughs> I mean, it's important to have goals, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kristen, let's get back to our conversation with Chelsea Devantes, because there's a whole lot more we need to know about Mariah pre-divadom. What's interesting about Mariah is how how little people know of her. So she really had a viciously traumatic childhood, um, extremely traumatic through abuse, through her family, and also being half black and half white, all of the trauma that came with being a mixed race woman. And she 
really um, got out of that entirely on her own, put herself in the city, was really working her ass off. And then she meets Tommy Matola, who um, is the evil, the, the evil villain in most celebrity female memoirs. You will see his <laughs> name pop up all the time. Just for some background, Tommy Mottola was the head of Sony Music in the 90s. He signed and developed Destiny's Child, the Dixie Chicks, and Celine Dion. He was the diva maker of his day. But she meets him, and she had the talent to make her career no matter who she met. But when she met him, he's older, they get married— she got into a very abusive relationship with him. But what the public sees is young Trollope marries rich, powerful man. And so immediately they started giving credit for her career to him. Like, oh, this is just some girl signed rather than this like incredible musical genius that she is. Then she starts to get angry. Tommy is like putting cameras in the house and he won't let her leave and he won't let her He's trying to make her appear more white and trying to whitewash her music and won't let her make musical decisions. And the public is treating her just like some dumb idiot. So then I think she gets angry from that and rebels against him in so many ways to the point where she literally has that famous quote unquote breakdown, which is ridiculous. If you rewatch the TRL breakdown, it's it will shock you and how little of a breakdown it is. And that was uh, I'm real. Love remix, a boy, which, which... Come on and love me. Give me more. Uh, what? <laughs> touch Mariah me, touch Carey. me. You gotta be kidding the me. ice cream truck. Come on. Wow. I was just going to commercial. I can't push this thing. Hold on. So what you're hearing here is Mariah Carey crashing MTV's TRL with Carson Daly in 2001. She shows up unannounced on set in a big old t-shirt, little short shorts and heels, and she's pushing an ice cream cart. She's trying to promote her new movie, Glitter. Then Mariah flings off her big old t-shirt to reveal a crop top underneath. She tells Carson Daly, you're my therapy session right now. And Carson Daly says to the camera, Mariah Carey's lost her mind. Nice. Nice, Carson. But the media also pushed the story that Mariah Carey was totally losing it. And what people didn't realize at the time, though, was that Mariah was going through some really difficult stuff, both personally and professionally. Well, what caused Mariah's supposed breakdown? Like, what was going on at the time? So a bunch of things went into it. Um, So basically, Mariah really wanted to do her music her way wanted to write the song she wanted to write. And she also wanted to be an actor really badly. And Tommy would never let her do any of these things. He was trying to stifle her at every second. And he mostly really, really didn't want her to be an actress because he could control the music world. He can't control the acting world. So he didn't want her to act. So Mariah finally has her little affair with Derek Jeter and goes through a ton of psychotic hoops, including using a couple's therapist that was previously Tommy's personal therapist that became theirs to get free of the relationship. She divorces him. She can finally take acting classes and she puts together Glitter, which is her dream project. It's kind of the storyline somewhat follows real events in her life. And she finally gets to be an actor. In a world where proving yourself is everything. Hey, Billy, can you repeat that verse? Okay. Let's go. They don't matter. They're just back up. One woman is about to get the chance. When the microphone comes, do something special. 
and she has written all the music for it. Tommy finds out one of the songs in the movie and gives the hook away to Jennifer Lopez, which is where this feud comes from. And he starts fucking with the music on her. And the project is not going well. The, you know, no one no one is sort of in control to make this like a creative success the way Tommy used to be in control of her. And, you know, your biggest fear when you leave your abuser is that uh, I will perish without them. They told me I'm going to perish without them. And what if that's true? What if I I can't be a person without him? And it starts happening to her. So Glitter is blowing up. Everyone hates Glitter. And she doesn't show up to work on one of these music videos that the company was like, you have to keep going, keep going to work. And she just couldn't. She hadn't slept in a long time. And there's interviews of her that summer tour where she's like, I haven't slept. I haven't been sleeping. Basically, I exhausted myself because I was working 21-hour days for at least two or three months straight. When she has her breakdown, her family is horrific. I mean, just uh, physical, emotional. Um, her mom is the Karen of all Karens. They're they're not great, and they guide her through that quote unquote breakdown. So she is like having this breakdown when she's at her mom's. Her mom calls the cops on her, and Mariah in her book goes into the history of white women calling the cops on black people, only it's within her own home because Mariah's dad's black, her siblings are black, and her mom is white. And how many times her mom would call the cops on their own family. Her mom is the one who initially starts this breakdown. And when she goes on TRL, no one was promoting glitter. It was going to be this huge failure. This was supposed to be her big, you know, I divorced Tommy and I'm going to make it. And so she decides to go on TRL to try and promote it. And the promotion just goes horribly wrong. And if you if you rewatch it, it does look like it's going wrong, but it doesn't look like a woman losing her mind. It looks like a woman under a lot of stress to me. Yeah, like a PR flop. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, someone should have handled this better. But you're not like, oh, my God, is she OK? I mean, still, the clip from MTV, the title is still like Mariah Carey's like insane breakdown. When in reality, she's like trying to pull off this thing and Carson Daly's being the biggest dick to her. And he's making jokes about how like the camera should come in closer and they should turn on the AC so her nipples show. And like, uh, it's just a bummer all around. Love that Carson Daly still has a job. Love that he still has a job. Still going. <laughs> um, what do you think saved her? This will sound crazy. 9-11. She was in a, a like institution rehab place in L.A. It was the second one she checked into and 9-11 happened and people uh, they just kind of let everyone go like, oh, you should go be back with your families because it was all these celebrities. And for Mariah, everyone was like, can you come sing Hero? Can you come sing Hero at our 9-11 fundraising concerts? And she puts on a white shirt, puts on some makeup, leaves the rehab and goes and sings Hero. I did not know that. Wow. Why do you think it, it really seems, especially listening to your recap of her memoir, it really seems like she embraced the the term and the idea and the spirit of diva. Like, why do you think she's never really tried to why do you think she opted for that instead of trying to distance herself from it? 
I don't think Mariah um, had a choice. I think her brand was already made before that point. To shift it would have been a pretty seismic endeavor. You know, like Dolly Parton handed us the brand. I have big boobs and I'm cute and sweet and uh, everybody loves me and I'll give you a little zinger to get out of it. She makes the boob jokes. She took control of her sexuality and is like, we will make fun of my boobs. We will know me for my boobs. And she made a lot of money off of that, which I think is so tight. Mariah was coming in this for the music and was really young and came from a traumatic childhood and went right into an abusive marriage. I think I mean, for me personally, it takes a lot of therapy to do anything in my life, to change anything in my life. Like, I think we kind of grew up with her in a way. And I think now she's at the point where um, this book was her saying, like, I work really hard. And just because I'm doing it in a sparkly leotard doesn't mean I'm not a songstress. Um, That said, she's mad. Mariah is mad. She's mad at Jennifer Lopez in the book. She's mad at Celine Dion in the book. She's mad at a lot of her mom. Like she's got a lot of anger. And if you have a lot of anger, like how hard would it be to cover that up and pretend you're like cute and sweet? I couldn't do it. I can't do it now. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break and our hearts will go on because up next, it's time to talk about that Canadian chanteuse who also married a much older, powerful man in the music industry. When we come back, Chelsea explains why Celine Dion's divadom looks so different from Mariah's, and how devouring celebrity memoirs has helped Chelsea process her own traumas as well. Because you loved me So you live in Vegas? Actually, I, I split my time between Las Vegas and Florida. Okay, so you have a place. Well, I heard you have your own water park. Yes. Well, you say yes like it's a matter of fact thing, like, yeah. Well. You know, so we, I would say to someone, well, you've got an Argo. They would go, yes. I'm going to, you have a water park. <laughs> why a, not? Some people yeah, why do not? drugs and go out every weekend. I build a water park. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good. We're back. And Caroline. I can't even imagine what it's like to be personal water park rich. Like, I'm barely slip and slide rich. (laughs) Oh, girl, I could not even afford to buy an inflatable baby pool at the start (laughs) of pandemic lockdown. (laughs) All right, before the break, we were talking with celebrity book club host Chelsea Devantes about the way trauma has informed Mariah's career moves. Celine Dion? has her own complicated backstory. How would you describe Celine Dion's version of being a diva? Wow, Celine is so different. And I did do a Celine Dion episode. Um, So both of these women had a very controlling manager slash husband in their lives. He was both. The difference is that Celine met her manager when she was 12 years old. Renee, who she goes on to marry when she's in her 20s and they start a romantic relationship when she's in her when she's a teenager. She was really groomed into that in a way that is very apparent in her own book when she's retelling it. And she's telling it in a very positive way. But you're like, oh, my God, you were 12. And this man was by your side every second of your life, taught you how to think about yourself, how to like yourself, how to have self-worth, how to perform, how to everything. 
even though that's negative, that relationship had a lot of care in it. Like, at least he was caring for her career and trying to give her self-esteem in a way that obviously connects her to him. But Mariah was sort of, at the same time, fending for herself and her sister was going to be making her a prostitute if she didn't run away when she's 11. Like, two totally different childhoods. And then Celine had Renee by her side, really controlling and protecting everything until um, he passed away. So... Their divadoms are very differently. I think Celine is a diva for sure because she lives in a little world that Renee created for her when she was 12 years old and she's never left it. She's never stepped outside the bubble. Any self-awareness she's lacking is because she was put in this little island and has lived there and has never been let out. And so she acts from a very sincere place and just hasn't been exposed to a lot of things where Mariah has been exposed to everything and has to like fight for herself. Yeah, I was going to say that um, in that Celine Dion episode, she she really comes across as just blithely ignorant <laughs> to... Yeah, it's like, pretty frustrating. <laughs> the ways that, like, the normal, the average person lives. And I was wondering if you felt like that, if you would categorize that as diva behavior or... A coping mechanism. I mean, I would describe all diva behavior as coping mechanisms. <laughs> that is like at its core, it's just like I am a woman trying to have a life. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Celine is so tough. I, Celine is really off-putting sometimes. And at the core of it, though, you realize like no one exposed her to the news, you know, and this older man who's going to end up taking her virginity and and controlling every moment of her life is whispering in her ear every night before she goes on stage. Just imagine this. A, an older gentleman, you're 12 years old, an old man every night whispers in your ear, you are the greatest. You are the best. Mm. No one can do what you do. Like, how do you grow up to not be a fucking monster? <laughs> you know, we're lucky she's as nice as she is. I think what's interesting about her is, do you guys remember when um, the flood hit New Orleans and Celine Dion sent a million dollars before George Bush did anything. And she was on Larry King and cried. Do you remember no. that? No. Okay. So this is this is where I really come around on Celine. So she's she's on Larry King Live and she is sobbing. And she's known – she's always been a very emotional crier. But she is – I mean, it is wild. You can tell, like, she was put in a bubble and then – she got to turn on the news one day and saw what was happening in this devastation. And she's sobbing and losing her mind. There's people still there waiting to be rescued. And for me, it's not acceptable. I know there's reasons for it, but I don't want to hear those reasons. You know, some people are stealing and they're making a big deal out of it. Oh, they're stealing 20 pair of jeans or they're stealing television sets. Who cares? They're not going to go too far with it. Maybe those people are so poor. Some of the people who do that, they're so poor. They've never touched anything in their lives. Let them touch those things for once. The main thing right now, it's not the people who are stealing. It's the people who are left there and they're watching helicopters flying over their heads. And they're praying. And then Larry's like, 
Celine, do you want to sing for us? And she's like, what? And he's oh. like, yeah, do you want to like sing a song for, for, I don't know, sing a song right now? And Celine has been told like she is an angel from heaven and her voice is a gift for the world. And she's often like, okay, like I need to do this for you. I am a servant to you with my magical voice. And so she's like, okay, um, okay, I will, I cannot think of a song right now, but I can think of um, a prayer. It's this prayer that was turned into one of her famous songs. And then she just full on sings this song for three minutes at camera. I pray you'll be all right and watch us where we go and help us to be wise in times when we don't know. a fucking masterpiece and i think that that it exists because she is such a weirdo who was um held away from the world and then we put out put through her out into the world you know she never went to school like all this stuff and then she comes out swinging like that it's really cool so both celine and mariah were called upon in moments of national crisis to use their talents to heal the nation? <laughs> yes, very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is such a good point. Yeah, we absolutely did that. And they absolutely <laughs> gave money when our government didn't. And bringing in Dolly Parton, you know, she gave a million dollars to the vaccine. Oh, man, I think you just named president, vice president and uh, secretary of state right there. <laughs> I was about to call for Mount Rushmore. Let's get get those dudes off there. Let's get Celine, Mariah, Dolly, you know. <laughs> Fuck. Well, how is Celine's treatment as a diva in the media differed from Mariah's? I think we give Celine a lot more respect. I don't even know if I want to say respect, but she wasn't treated the way Mariah was, which I think is for two reasons. Even though Celine has done, quote unquote, is like, you wouldn't say like sexy. Like even when she's in her little outfits, she is not um, overly sexualized. Whereas Mariah Carey was put in little white underwear (laughs) with a rainbow over it and blasted out to the universe. So I think the fact that, again, less sexuality, I think people treat her with a little more respect keeps going back to the word, but they're a little more respectful with their diva treatment. So like we we will appreciate your talent as long as you aren't distractingly sexy and attractive. Yeah, like do you think you're fuckable? Then like you're a stupid, dumb bitch and you have no talent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do you think that, I mean, speaking of talent, like how do you think that their talent has been scrutinized differently? I weirdly think Celine has really been um given more her due than Mariah. I mean, Celine does not write music. She does not write her songs. And often she wasn't making the really artistic decisions in her career that influenced music. A lot of that was Renee. And Celine has this incredible voice. She'll go on vocal rest for three weeks. She's like very, she's an incredible musician in that way. But Mariah gave us cultural trends. She changed music, her taste, her influences, the songs she wrote. She pretty much like invented the modern Christmas album. She did all these things that we just haven't given her credit for at all. So it seems like Mariah is perhaps the more culturally significant diva, question mark? Um, you know, I, I will push back and say 
Um, I refuse to pin two divas against each other, and we need them both. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think, but I do think you could answer that question personally. I think personally, um, I didn't even realize the effect Celine Dion had on me and my childhood I, she, until I read this book and realized, like, oh, she really was a big part of my childhood and wanting to do talent shows. Um, but Mariah was really influencing me in the moment, including, like, you know, she has really big cheekbones. I have really big cheekbones. And so, you know, it, it just like little things where you're kind of looking to her to guide your teenage experience. I feel like Mariah did more of that. Um, and again, a lot of talent show songs. I really tried to sing a lot of these songs. Um, <laughs> and just like things that she gave to my life. I always knew Mariah had a huge influence and I didn't realize how big of an influence Celine had till later. Does the diva still exist? I don't know. I mean, do we consider Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, Billie Eilish? Like, do we? I don't think we put those diva labels on them. And probably for the best. Maybe it's a branding thing where it's like, actually, we're not doing that to women anymore. Can you believe it? I don't know. The first person who comes to mind to me is a Lady Gaga, but I feel like she's somehow not. I don't know. I don't know that I've noticed her being labeled as a diva. Yeah. Maybe it's not happening anymore for the best. I mean, people are definitely called difficult, you know, <laughs> or um, I, yeah, Lady Gaga, maybe she's also just opened up too much about the struggle. And so now people don't feel like it's fair to call her a diva because you can see her wounds so openly. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, that that trauma aspect is a recurring theme in in a lot of these celebrity memoirs, like you said, whether that's trauma from childhood or or having some type of breakdown. And I'm curious if reading all of these memoirs, both like personally when you're going to Walmart and then for the show, has that helped you? <laughs> has that helped you in your own experience, like your own dealing with your own trauma or or difficult experiences? This will sound so corny, but these books have saved my life and continue to save my life. Um, I I had a really traumatic childhood myself, and and it 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 really makes you wonder if a certain type of person is drawn to the arts. But what I think is more likely is that a lot of people have trauma in their lives, but because they become celebrities, they will open up about it in their books, and they're really all of them are. Most of them are incredible roadmaps into how you truly master your trauma and become a more powerful, successful, hopefully better woman. They've really changed my life. They, they saved my life when I found them as a kid and I just like wanted to know how to survive. And even now, I mean, Demi Moore's book um, about like finding out her dad's not her real dad profoundly affected me because that same thing happened to me. And now I'm able to speak about it publicly in a way that I saved for friends and family before. I would make jokes about it, but I wasn't really open about the pain of it. When you've had a traumatic childhood and you talk about trauma, your your brain tends to shut down. It's really hard. And these books, right when you're talking about something really difficult for your brain and heart to be open to, will be like, oh, and by the way, Ashton Kutcher was a total dick and cheated on me. <laughs> and <laughs> It's such a great, like, they're the only, they're, I, I love reading these more than self-help books more than anything because my brain stays active. They're fun. They bring me enough joy that I can, like, soak up the dark parts. Um, 
So yeah, these books mean a lot to me. And uh, even though they're trash, they are beautiful <laughs> trash and, and trash is my favorite thing. What what other elements of their stories have jumped out and helped you? Um, you know, just the story existing at all. Like I, I think trauma really lives when it really breeds in shame and shame comes from silence. And especially with like uh, a lot of things women go through, we are made to believe that it's like, you know, your fault or you're alone or you brought this on in some way. And so even like when Me Too happened and you just recognize like you're not alone, you know, this is actually happening to everyone. It alleviates so much shame. And with these books, you know, there's things that I thought could have only ever happened to me. And then you read them in a book and you feel like, oh, my God, I'm not alone. And then I think just for me, seeing someone like that be brave enough to share has made me be brave enough to share in my art. And then the act of sharing is very healing because it's very hard to do. It's very, very hard to share your horrors. And yeah, these women pushing me to shame then heals you feeling shameful because there's nothing, you know, the act of sharing is like an antonym to shame. Well, what have you heard back from listeners of your show? I, oh my God, what if I cry on your guys' podcast? <laughs> um, that's the other thing, too. I'm a full-on comedian who has cried on podcasts. <laughs> like, how fucking embarrassing is that? Um, it has been, um, it's been totally life-changing. And I didn't, I think, like, we've put out this idea of, like, what normal is in the world. That's just not true. And a lot of people have reached out to me to say they feel the same ways or have gone through similar things. And it's like way too many people for us to think these things aren't happening to us all the time, you know. And um, I've never I've just like I used to always feel so alone and like no one would understand me. And now I feel like lots of people understand me and I'm like really not alone. And it's yeah, I totally underestimated it, you know, especially Every comedian has a podcast. I really didn't want one. It was like, it's just like, no, I don't want to be another comedian with a podcast. And then um, and then to see that it just like is the most beautiful thing I've ever been a part of. I'm like, I can't believe I almost missed this. You can find Chelsea Devantes on Instagram at Chelsea Devantes. There, she recaps all the celebrity memoirs she reads on her Instagram stories. Plus, don't forget to listen to her podcast, Celebrity Book Club. Y'all, I am so excited that Chelsea has an episode coming up dedicated to Sharon Stone's memoir. I will be riveted. Make sure you check it out, too. Dreams are coming true. And because we love our 90s divas so much, we have a Divas Spotify playlist we made especially for this episode. Thank you, senior producer Nora Ritchie, for putting that together. We'll link to it in the episode description. Y'all can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unladylike Media. You can also support Kristen and me directly by joining our Patreon. There, you'll get weekly bonus episodes full of listener advice, pop culture recaps, and more. Plus, our undying love at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. 
Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Caroline Irvin. And Kristen Conger of Unladylike Media. Next week, we're doing something brand new on the podcast. It's our first installment of Ask Unladylike. Kristen and I will be answering listeners' burning questions about complicated friendships, toxic workplaces, and yes, relationships. You don't want to miss this episode. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. So what I will say is that I I also said this um, on her on the episode we did about J Lo, and she shares nothing in her book. She's she goes about it a totally different route. Um, but I was once working. I was once in this writer's room, and this just some fucking dude, nondescript dude, was like, "Ugh, I don't like J Lo." And I was like, why? And he's like, she just seems so pleased with herself. Yeah. And I was like, she fucking, if she's not, who is? Idiot fucking eating yogurt with his finger out of the oh, cup? God. Like, what are you talking about? And so I, I think like, you know, had he been like, oh, her musical choices, well, you know, he had nothing specific. He just didn't like that she was happy with herself. And so I love that everyone was like, JLo, you can't sing. And she's like, great, I'll be singing live at the inauguration. <laughs> and I'm going to mix in Let's Get Loud. Stitcher. <laughs>